there seems to be this sense of optimism in the air. And generally there are two approaches when it comes to the new year. Uh, There are those people that approach it by making their New Year's resolutions. They get their journals all together. They get their calendars out. They love all the new stuff. They got everything organized. How many of you are resolution people? They're embarrassed. Isn't that crazy? People are like, mm-hmm. I saw two hands. I see your hands. All right. How many of you are, your resolution is, I'm not making resolutions this year. I mean, that you realize you made a resolution, right? It's like the people say, there's no, I, I am absolutely certain there's no absolute truth. Well, you just stated an absolute truth, right? When you say I'm making a resolution not to make a resolution, you made a resolution, so congratulations, you're resolution people, alright? So there are two approaches, and generally they kind of fall in line with two different kinds of people, alright? you got two different kinds of people in life in general. One is the dreamers. You have people that are dreamers, that are vision people, that imagine the possibilities, they get excited about new things, that are always hopeful about what's happening. And then you have... The realist. People that are like, well, let's just, you know, calm down for a minute. Let's think about what's really happening here. And here's what happens. The really interesting thing is, dreamers and realists marry each other. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? Amen, Alex got me right there, right? And so they marry each other. And dreamers are the ones they enter the year and they say, this is my year. This is it. And the realists go, that's what you said last year, right? The the dreamers are the people that go, wow, look at all the possibilities. And the realists are the ones that go, yeah, but how is it going to happen? Here's what I want to challenge you today. Because my my guess is, you know, if if you don't know, ask your spouse, which of those you are. All right? My guess is you know which of those you are in general. And I want both of you, whether you're a dreamer or you're a realist, to view 2017 through a particular lens. I mentioned a few minutes ago that 2016 was a great year for our church, and it was. We, um, we gave more to missions in 2016 than we've ever given to missions. We had more people involved in mission projects worldwide, locally, statewide than we've ever had before. We had a fall festival event where we don't even know how many people were here, but it was a lot more than we expected. We had no good way to keep count of people. We had a Christmas Eve service where by our estimation, our best guess, we surpassed what we normally have on Christmas Eve by 150 people. It's a great year. But I believe that if you are a person that looks at that and says, man, that's good, we're, we're good, we're good. And you kind of settle in, then you miss what God might have in store. During 2017, as my granddaddy used to say, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, right? I really didn't understand what creek don't rise meant until I lived through the flood of Nashville, right? Lord willing, the creek don't rise... In August of this year, I'll celebrate 10 years being your pastor. And it's been a great 10 years. But I want to just tell you on the front end, okay, that God has been working in my heart over the last three, four months to say, what's next? What's higher? What's better? 
what's the goals and the aspirations and the God-sized dreams that we need to have as a congregation. And the word that we want to think about, that I want to think about today, to set the whole 2017. This isn't the start of a new series. We're going to start a new one next week. This is a one message kind of deal. I want us to think about one word, whether you're a realist, whether you're a dreamer. And I want you to see this new year through the lens of possibility. Possibility. What's possible? And the reason I want you to do that is for a couple of reasons. First of all, and it kind of takes on different understanding for both of those groups. If you're a realist in the room, if you stop thinking about possibility, you quickly turn from a realist into a pessimist. Nobody wants to be around pessimists. You get to a point in your life where you just say, well, this is how it is. It's not going to get any better. There's nothing good that could happen or nothing better that's going to go on. It's just how it is. It's just life. And you begin to live your life in this mode of not seeing God-given, God-realized, God-potential possibilities. And I don't know, maybe you can find one, and pessimists probably could try to look real hard to find one. I don't know that you found a blessed pessimist in the Bible. By blessed, I don't mean financially. I just mean somebody living in the will of God, doing what God has called them to do that are pessimists. Now, Jeremiah had some rough days, but he also said God's mercies are new every morning. Job had some rough days. And yet he said, even though he slay me, yet I will praise my God. If you're a realist and you fail to see possibility, then the reality is you quickly move into the realm of pessimism. And pessimism is not in line with the will of God. Some of you need to write that down and put it on a mirror somewhere. Pessimism is not in line with the will of God. Secondly, if you're the dreamer out there, well, I want you to think about possibility not so much as uh, what could happen. You don't have an issue trying to dream up stuff, but the reality of, okay, what is Practical and possible. You see, possibility, the reality that something could change, the reality that something needs to change, the reality that something could be different, fuels the potential for a better future. And when you begin to believe that something is not possible, you have already validated yourself and you're correct. But that's not how God intended for us to live. I was thinking about this week, and I started reading a book about a couple of guys. I'm just, I mean, just beginning the book. About a couple of guys that have impacted your life and my life greatly, either very directly or indirectly. And it's these two guys. Anybody know who these are? Those are the Wright brothers, right? Wilbur and Orville Wright. And here's the thing I want you to know. Every time you sit in an airplane, I want you to think about, some of you think my airplane days are done, but every time you sit in an airplane, I want you to think about the fact that these guys had no business figuring out how to get people in the air. None. No technical training. Anybody know what their jobs were, what they did? They were bicycle shop owners. Had no formal training. They had uh, two hobbies. Watching birds and drawing them. Now think about that. If somebody had said, hey, listen, we're going um, to test out the first man flight in history. And here's who's going to do it. A couple of guys that own a bicycle shop that like to look at birds. But they weren't dissuaded because they saw the possibility. They, they tell the story of being kids and their dad bringing home this little toy that 
floated in the air for a minute. A little helicopter-like thing built out of very basic materials and being fascinated by that. They talk about sitting out and watching birds and drawing birds and one brother turning to the other, Wilbur Orville, and saying, you know what, I think we could harness the principles of birds and allow people to be in things that will fly. The guy that wrote the biography that I'm reading, David McCullough, says this. He says, in no way did their lack of technical training, did their lack of knowledge, did their lack of support discourage or deter Wilbur and Orville Wright. Any more than the fact they had no college education, no formal technical training, no experience working with anyone other than themselves, no friends in high places, no financial backers, no government subsidies, and little money of their own. Or the entirely real possibility that at some point they could be killed trying to accomplish this. None of that deterred them because they were convinced of the possibility. They shouldn't have been the ones that do it. The U.S. government actually paid a guy over $70,000, Samuel Langley, to figure out manned flight. And the Wright brothers did it for less than a thousand. Because they believed in the power of possibility. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look in the Old Testament a story of a guy who believed in the possibility of what could be. Then we're going to look at a New Testament passage about what the possibility for you might be. And here are the two questions that I want you to deal with today. And the first one is important, but the second one is much more important. And the first question is... What do you believe is possible for you in 2017? What do you believe is possible for you in 2017? Like, I know you're not resolutions people because none of you made resolutions except not to make resolutions. So don't think about resolutions, but just ask, what is possible? What do you think? When you think, okay, 2017, here's what is possible for me in 2017... What would you fill in the blank with? What would you write down as a possibility for your life? And the second question, which is much more important, and if you look back from on December 31st, 2017, and you look back and you've answered this question in an affirmative way and pursued this, could radically change your life. The second question is this. What does God believe is possible for you in 2017? We're thinking about possibilities and we think about resolutions. Jeff said it earlier. A lot of times the most popular resolutions are all about self-improvement. I'm going to work out more. Like people that seriously work out hate the gym over the next week and a half. Not that I would know. I'm not one of those guys, but that's what I hear. Right? They hate it because everybody's coming to work out in 2017. They say, don't worry, it'll be fine. It'll be back to normal in about three weeks. I'm going to eat less. Been through the holiday season, you stepped on that scale December 28th, and you're like, "Woo!" That's where all those Buckeyes went. What had that happen, right? I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to eat better. And so, you know, the problem is down south, we got all these New Year's Day traditions, right? Ham hot and greens and black-eyed peas, right? You got all this stuff. So you think, well, January 2nd, woo, I'm I'm back on that train. I'm not going to eat better. I'm going to read more. I'm going to be more attentive to things. But the question is, what does God intend for you in this year? 
One of the things I love about reading Scripture, one of the things I love about God is that He is a God of second, third, fourth chances. That just as I mentioned with Jeremiah, His mercies are new every morning. And with God, every day is New Year's Day. You get an opportunity to restart every morning. What's God's think is possible for you? I want to look at this story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, one of the most influential chapters in my life in all the Bible, as we look at what God intends to happen. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Chachalah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa. Now I could spend all day on that one verse. Really, I couldn't, but I just like to say that sometimes. All it's telling us is, Nehemiah wrote it, and it was a day on the calendar. Hanai, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So, just to remind you where we are with Nehemiah, Nehemiah is coming towards the end of Old Testament history. Israel has been united under David, divided under Solomon and Rehoboam, into northern and southern. Northern Israel has been conquered, southern Israel has been conquered. They've all been under rule of someone else. In particular, this group have been under Babylonian exile. They're in exile, finally a Persian governor comes to rule and he says you can go back to your homeland so some of them the remnant some of the people have left Babylon and have gone back left Persian rule and gone back to Jerusalem and then Jerusalem they were given the ability to do whatever they wanted to do to rebuild to have a good time to follow their gods they were given the complete freedom to do that under this new rule and Nehemiah who is in the Persian court who is ruling with the Persians who is at a very high level when his brother comes back says Give me an update. How are the boys doing back home? Verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived in exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. The report comes to Nehemiah and the report is not good. It is, they're in disgrace. They haven't rebuilt. The walls are down. Now I know in the last year, in 2016, there was a lot of discussion about building a wall. And I know that that discussion hit at a lot of core issues. But the wall significance here is greater than any wall significance you may think there is or is not in our current situation. Because the wall in their society was every bit of infrastructure that was necessary for a society to succeed. They didn't have an organized police force. Now, without a wall, they didn't have an organized military. This is like going to the mall on the week of Christmas shopping and not only leaving your doors unlocked, but leaving them open with all your packages sitting in there for anyone to see. The city of Jerusalem had the walls destroyed so they couldn't rebuild because every time they tried to rebuild, other nations that were surrounding them just walked in and took whatever they wanted. And the word gets back to Nehemiah. They're in great trouble. The walls are broken. The gates have been burned down. People can come and go as they please. They're taking whatever they want. They're not hanging out. Houses hadn't been rebuilt. Temple of God hadn't been rebuilt. We'll find out. Verse 4 says this. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for a number of days. 
fasting and praying before the God of heaven, I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you. We have not kept the commands, the statutes, and the ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to honor your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah is there. He is in the court. He's serving his duties. He's in literally the lap of luxury. He is right hand. As cupbearer, he would have been the last person to taste anything before it got to the king. He was the king's most trusted servant. And as he's there, he hears word of the destruction in Jerusalem. And he can't hardly contain himself. Here's the thing. I believe that God has some amazing possibilities for you And for me and for this church. But all real possibility begins with a starting, startling realization of where we are. Nehemiah realized that the walls were broken. And that the people were disgraced. And as a result, so was God. He had this unselfish concern For the good of God's name, for the good of God's people, for the glory of the one he served. And he hears the word and he begins to say, Lord, I understand why we are where we are. Do you realize, do you see, do you notice how much responsibility Nehemiah places on himself and his people? I mean, I could go on for a long time about the tendency in our culture to blame other people for the problems we currently have. Where we shift and play the shell game of who's responsible. Presidents blaming previous presidents. Presidents blaming future presidents. Congress blaming presidents. Presidents blaming Congress. Families blaming each other. Moms blaming children. Children blaming moms. Children blaming dads. Children blaming each other's siblings. Teachers blaming parents, parents blaming teachers, pastors blaming congregations, congregations blaming pastors. It's always somebody else's fault. And when you read Nehemiah's prayer to God, it is startling in the realization of his own sin and the sins of his people. And never once does he say, God, why are we in this state? He says, I know exactly why we are. It is because we have broken our covenant with you. We have sinned against your name. And it is because of that you have placed us in the situation we are in. It says that when he hears the word, he weeps. And mourns for days fasting and praying before God of heaven. 
We'll find out as we read the rest of Nehemiah. What happens is he becomes so distraught that the king says, what is wrong with you? When I was growing up, I remember well, and now I'm on the other side of this equation. I remembered my dad picking me up from school as an elementary school student, as a middle school student, even as my first couple of years of high school before I started driving on my own. And dad would pick me up and get in the car. And first question dad would ask, well, how's your day? It's good. It's fine. It's okay. And then the probing questions began. What would you do? What did you learn? What did you have? You know. And I did the same. It's fine. It's good. You know. And there would be certain days when dad would just look at me and go, are you okay? You look like you lost your best friend or something. Are you okay? He could sense within me that something was wrong. King looked at Nehemiah and he was so impacted, so affected. And you have to understand, in Nehemiah's job... Part of his job was to put on a good face for the king. What is it in your life that as 2017 dawns, God needs to wake you up about? What is it in your life that needs to be addressed, that needs to be changed, that needs to be different? What is it that when God sees the possibilities of your life, the first thing he needs you to get to understand is that there's a problem, that there's a concern, that there's an issue, that this needs... To change, true change, always begins with a startling realization. Secondly, we see that true change is accomplished through uncompromising devotion. I love the story, what happens here in chapter 1. Nehemiah does two things. He prays and he begins to plan. He prays and he begins to plan. I read this week that says... Pray as if it is completely God's responsibility to do it. And then plan as if God's going to answer that prayer. Because that's what Nehemiah did. God, this is what the situation is. But I know that you desire that it's possible that your name would be great again. That your people would be saved again. And I'm going to spend my time seeking your face. Knowing what you have described for us to do. Asking you for provision for this plan. God, we need you. As Jeff was singing the new song that he was teaching you today. New for some of you. Um, some of you have heard it before. But I was sitting in back. And it, that's one of those songs that in my personal life. Now, when I'm at a moment, a crossroads, when I'm at a place of seeking God, that song speaks to my heart because there's almost this primitive wail that can come from it. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, How I need you. Can I tell you something? Until you get to the place of complete desperation and dependence upon God, the possibilities that God sees for you in 2017 will never materialize. You can't do God-sized visions and dreams on your own. And until we as a congregation, until First Baptist Church Goodlettsville gets to the place that we are completely dependent upon Our God and desperate for him, we will not realize the potential and possibilities that God has for us in 2017 and beyond.
in Nehemiah's life, we see this uncompromising devotion to the sovereignty, to the awesomeness, to the holiness, to the faithfulness of God. He knew God's statutes. He knew God's word. He knew what God had commanded. He knew what God had said. He had studied that in his life and he knew it. And he was living his life according to those principles uncompromisingly. True change is accomplished through uncompromising devotion. The book that I read at the end of last year was just a fascinating book. And uh, I uh, encourage you to read it if you're interested in this kind of thing. It's a book called Grit. Author of the book, Angela Duckworth, really started the book because she was asked by the United States military to figure out why some guys stuck through it and some guys didn't. Now, some soldiers made it through basic training and some didn't, particularly the most stringent of basic trainings in the military. Because what they couldn't figure out is they would let these guys in based on test scores from three or four different areas and your test score ability did not correlate at all to your ability to stick it out. That some of the lowest test scores stuck it out, some of the highest stuck it out, some of the lowest dropped out, some of the highest dropped out. They couldn't figure, they were trying to figure this out because it'd be much better if you didn't have so many guys quit. Like, that, the goal is not to... Get too many. They're, they're not Gideon's plan. You remember Gideon's plan, right? We're just going God going to weed them out. That's not the United States military. If they volunteer, they want them to succeed. And she found out that the people that survived and made it and advanced had something she called grit, passion, and perseverance. Now, whatever it is that you think God might be envisioning for your life. In the next year, well, this is, could be just for normal. If, if you've got a if you've got a desire to lose weight, I saw a, a study this week about the uh, the diets that were most effective. And you know what they showed? That there are certain diets that are more effective in in five to six, seven to eight weeks, but after about six months, they're all about the same effectiveness. You know why? Because the same percentage of people stick to them, which is not very high. If you're going to accomplish the possibility of what God has envisioned for you, if we as a church are, it's going to take perseverance and it's going to take passion. And Nehemiah did that. I'm going to give you some other stuff to read at the end as homework. Aren't you all excited about that? I just told you you're having homework after today. I didn't hear any amens about that right there. Thank you, Alex. But you ought to go read the rest of Nehemiah sometime this afternoon, this week. Because you talk about a guy that had passion and perseverance. This is it. At some point when you decide I'm going to chase after the possibilities that God has for me. I can guarantee what's going to happen. The enemy is not going to be excited about that. And opposition is going to come your way. It's going to happen. Sooner rather than later. More often than less. Opposition is going to come your way. And one of the life verses for me. I have about four or five verses that I just return to over and over and over again. Many of you know Isaiah 26, 8 is one of them. Yes, Lord, walking the way your truth. We wait for you. Your name and your renown is the desire of our souls. That verse was embedded in me literally 20 years ago tonight. 
I remember the place. I remember the day. I remember where God spoke it. And it has changed the way that I view life. And it has changed so much about how I pursue God. That's one of them. Another one comes from the book of Nehemiah. And it happens when I'm in the midst of opposition. It happens when things are not going like I want it to do. It happens when the enemy is coming against me. Because in the book of Nehemiah, they start to rebuild the wall. Most of you know this story. They begin to work on it. They get it going. And suddenly the people around are like, wait, 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 wait a minute. We can't... We don't want them to rebuild the wall because if they rebuild the wall, we can't get in. And so there's a particular guy that's kind of a thorn in the side of him. And he comes and says, hey, we need to talk to you. And Nehemiah is up working on the wall. Great picture. Nehemiah is working, getting things set up. And he says, hey, we need you to come down and meet with the guy. And Nehemiah says to them, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. It's grit. And the scripture just kind of throws this in there because he's not really, uh, he's emphasizing it, but we miss it when we read it. And it says, and I told him five times, I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down. See, we think that we read that the first time, it's like, oh, that's cool, he said I'm doing it. And the guy said, alright, that's cool, Nehemiah, we'll see you later. But it says in scripture, he had to tell him five times. It's like the nagging toddler at the bottom of the wall, come down, I'm not coming down, come down, I'm not coming down, come, I'm not coming, I'm not coming, I am not coming down. And if you chase after the possibilities that God has for you in doing the will of God for the purposes of God in 2017, there are going to be multiple moments when you have to say to the enemy, when you have to say things to friends, to family, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. I'm going to stick to it. And here's the last thing. True change is fueled by an unyielding desire. Well, what is that desire? It is twofold. It is to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to this servant who delights in your name. His desire was to give glory and honor to God and God alone. And secondly, his desire was to risk everything for the purposes that God had put in place. In chapter 2, Nehemiah literally puts his life on the line to see God's purposes accomplished. He lays himself at the feet of the king and allows the king to determine his fate because he was so desirous to see God's kingdom advanced. Whatever goals or possibilities you have in mind for 2017, if they don't involve glorifying the name of the Lord and extending His kingdom for His purposes, they're too small. Which brings me back to the question I asked at the beginning. What does God think is possible for you in 2017? What does God think it's possible for you in 2017. Can I give you an answer? Because see, he gives us an answer in the New Testament. And my guess is when you first heard that question, either about yourself or about God, you thought of external stuff. And yet God's answer to that is something inside. This is what God thinks is possible for you in 2017. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's what happens when you put that in and the screen's about to go dark on you. Is you forget gentleness. Maybe that's a sign to God that that's something I need to work on if it's just slipping my mind, right? Now you know where this comes from, right? Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the verse. I think we got the verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the idea is you ought to display the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's my question to you. Which of these do you need to have a startling realization about? Do you need to be devoted to developing in the year ahead for the purpose of the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom? Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your homework for the week, okay? I need you to find out in your life which of those you want to work on in 2017 because God has laid it on your heart. There are simple ways to do that. First of all, ask your spouse and remind them that you can, they can only pick one. Because my guess, some of you are going to ask your spouse, well, you know, really, there's this joy issue and the kindness. and the, Just one, just one, I need just one. Ask a friend. In just a few moments, ask your Sunday school class. But make sure you get alone sometime and ask God. Pick one. Your homework for this week is to pick one. Just one of them and say, for 2017, this is what I desire to grow in because I believe this is a place God is asking me to grow. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to put your life into the Scripture. You think, well, how does that relate? Well, here's the thing. God develops these characteristics in our lives by encounters with Him. And the best way we have to encounter Him is through His Word. So put your life into His Word. Start reading God's Word. And we're going to make this easy for you. I've got two or three ways that you can begin to read. First of all, you can pick up your Bible and read any time. But I want to give you some plans. I'm going to challenge you this year to read through the Bible. Now, not we're going to give you two ways to do that. One is verse by verse, every word of the Bible. Read through it in a year. The second is called the whole story, where you get glimpses of the whole story through the year. You won't read every word, but you'll get all the major themes of the year. And we're going to make that simple for you in two ways. First of all, there's a website. Our website has right now, if you go to fbcgillisville.com, down there it says Bible Reading Plan under the main heading. You click there, it has the readings for every day this week. Both plans. If you're a smartphone user, you can go right now on your, on your smartphone to readscripture.org, download an app. It'll remind you every morning of what to read. It is the reading plan for verse by verse we're using through the year. It has videos on there. It has places where you can understand the scripture better. If you'll come on Wednesday nights, on Wednesday nights, I'm going to be preaching through what we read the week before in the verse by verse. And then we're going to talk about what's there as accountability. Now, if you say, well, I'm not going to read. I don't need to come on Wednesday. Still come on Wednesday. If you just come on Wednesday, you're going to hear the whole Bible in a year. Six o'clock, Bible study. So this week, your homework is to pick one of those traits. I'm going to use this. God's going to work on this in my life. Two, start reading God's word. And number three, come back next week. 
Now, for most of you, that's the easiest that I have said. The next week, we're going to start talking about a new series where we're going to talk about how. For all you realists out there, we're going to talk about the how. For all you dreamers out there that need it, we're going to talk about the how. We're going to do this in 2017. Happy New Year. There's no better time to ask God what's next than today. Let's pray together.